Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, recording from my home studio in Westchester County, New York. Joining me today is Cheryl Dorsey, president of Echoing Green, a global nonprofit that supports emerging social entrepreneurs and invests in their ideas and leadership. The organization has been on the front lines of addressing the world's biggest problems for more than 30 years, raising up transformational leaders who challenge the status quo. Cheryl, who herself received an Echoing Green Fellowship in 1992, is a trailblazer in her own right. An accomplished leader and entrepreneur, she has served in two presidential administrations as a White House Fellow and Special Assistant to the U.S. Secretary of Labor, Special Assistant to the Director of Women's Bureau of the U.S. Labor Department, and Vice Chair for the President's Commission on White House Fellowships, respectively. Recognized with numerous public service awards and named one of America's best leaders by U.S. News & World Report and the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School in 2009, she's particularly focused on healthcare, working to advance her belief in the importance of culturally and linguistically appropriate increased access for all. Cheryl, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate you having me. Well, I am incredibly appreciative of you coming on the show. You're a very busy person. So thank you for being so generous with your time. And I feel like I probably shared maybe 15% of your incredible background and career and bio. And even that I was out of breath. So super impressive. Let's just start with talking a little bit about what Echoing Green is, besides the fact I believe it's named after a poem. And I'm sure you're very used to explaining what Echoing Green is, but for our listeners, let's start there. Echoing Green is an early stage funder of emerging social entrepreneurs. And for those of you who follow the field of social innovation, you will recognize Echoing Green as one of the key leaders in the field. And it's really our job to go out into the world and help to launch tomorrow's global leaders in social innovation. And we really do that in three ways. So we have a really aggressive search and selection function. So we're really committed to finding a diverse group of leaders through an annual global search process. We then invest millions of dollars, actually, in seed funding in the ideas and organizations that these incredible social entrepreneurs are seeking to launch. And then third, we're really committed to community. So we believe that part of our job is connecting these leaders to Echoing Green, as well as the broader social innovation community. And we do that in a variety of ways through sharing resources, information, thinking about the well-being of these leaders and helping them to build power as they seek to change the world. It sounds like it was the original kind of kinder, gentler, more social impact version of Shark Tank before there was Shark Tank. <laughs> A I little bit. That. <laughs> you got it. You totally got it. Although I sometimes will say I'm more like Paula Abdul than the Robert Herjavec or Damon John. I will say that we are so honored and inspired by the emerging social entrepreneurs who come to Echoing Green. And it's really a privilege and a gift to work with them. So imagine these are folks that are full of passion and commitment and put everything on the line to make their communities better. And that's a real responsibility when they bring their hopes and dreams to you. So it is give them a hug, wish them well. And if they can make their claim and state their case of why they deserve investment, then by God, it's our job to figure out a way to support these incredible leaders. So more Paula Abdul, less scary Shark Tank. I like that. 
And it must be difficult to say no, because you can't say yes to everybody. To your point, it must be hard to say no to the majority of people that come through and have these amazing ideas. No, it is. And you look at the numbers, every year we get, I don't know, close to 3,100, 3,200 submissions from 160 plus countries around the world. We select less than 2% of those who apply to us, even less than 1%. So it is a really brutal application process and in many ways feels down right Darwinian. But I think we made a pledge a number of years ago, as one of my colleagues says so beautifully, to make our selection process as generous and as grace-filled as possible. So knowing that we're going to say no to most of the people who come to us, how can we help their journey be a little more effective? How can we help them better mold, shape their ideas, their social business plan, even if we don't have the good fortune and the opportunity to support them? Somebody might and should. So how can we help them get back out into the world and find additional support. So we take that responsibility really seriously. And we really often say that we are relational and not transactional. We really appreciate people sharing their hopes and dreams with us. And we're careful with that. So two-part question related to that. Could you share with us some brands or organizations that we might have some familiarity with that were born of Echoing Green? And then which leaders... Had you, if you look back, had you wished you invested in, and they still did really, really well with others, but you wish that if you could go back, you would maybe make a different decision. If you are not familiar with Echo and Green, which many people aren't, then you however, probably are familiar with a number of our fellows and the organizations that they've launched. So we were early backers of, I would say, most of the national service organizations that have really built the field of national service in this country. So the founders of City Year, the founders of Teach for America, the founders of Public Allies, and even one Michelle Obama who received support and grant funding from Equine Green to start the Chicago Office of Public Allies many years ago, Citizen Schools, Blue Engine, and a number of other national service organizations. So we're really proud of being one of the key funders of so many of the luminaries in that space. In addition, a number of really prominent global leaders have come across the transom. So for people who follow microfinance, incredible leaders like Vikram Makula, founder of SKS Microfinance, at one time the fastest growing microcredit institution in the world and the first to go public on India Stock Exchange back in 2010, or incredible folks working on sustainable agriculture like Andrew Yoon from One Acre Fund, which is now the world's largest network of smallholder farmers across the African continent, or talk about a relevant, two relevant examples in this day and age. One is from my generation of Echoing Green. You mentioned I received an Echoing Green Fellowship in 1992 when I was launching a mobile health unit called the Family Van. But a couple years after me, Echoing Green invested in Van Jones way back in the day. I love Van Jones. Right? Amazing. And most people know Van as an extraordinary public intellectual, a constant presence on CNN, founder of the Ella Baker Center or his work around green jobs. But Equity Green got to know Van back in the day when he founded Bay Area Police Watch, which was one of the first organizations in our country that was dedicated to providing counseling and legal services for victims of illegal police harassment and brutality. That was in 1994, Aaron. 
and just a really extraordinary example of how Echoing Green backs leaders early and then just is astounded by their trajectory, whether they continue with the organization in which we invest them to help start or they go on to do other things in social impact. So I think Van is a great example. And even today, one of our Echoing Green fellows who also serves on our board, Raj Punjabi, founder of Last Mile Health, which really worked to build the community health worker infrastructure and rural health care infrastructure in Liberia, working very closely with former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was on the front lines of the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in Africa, and who now today has really been on the front lines of marrying this public health crisis that we find ourselves in in this country with the economic insecurity crisis of how do you connect so many folks who are without jobs now? What do we have to 40 million U.S. jobless claims? Let's put those folks to work as contact tracers. And Dr. Raj Punjabi has been talking about this for months. So it's an extraordinary array of folks. And I'm going to leave unanswered the second part of your question about- I knew you would. (laughs) Not going to say it. It makes me feel bad. It hurts my heart. But there are plenty of folks with way more resources than we at Equine Green have. And those folks are doing well. And that's the job of social impact. We need more investment. We need more folks making good investments. And all of us get it wrong. We all do. (laughs) I think that's fair. I had to ask it because I was just kind of curious. And are there certain areas, I know that healthcare is something that you are very focused on, but in terms of echoing green overall, how do you choose and where are the verticals or the areas of emphasis in terms of social impact? Because you just mentioned so many different things from agriculture to healthcare access. How do you decide and is there a strategy or is it more so that is determined by the people who actually apply for fellowships? Yeah, it's really the latter, Aaron. I mean, we are a talent sourcing organization. We believe so deeply that leadership development is one of the most important and impactful strategy for driving long-term social change, that we go where the talent goes. And I often say that Echoing Green is agnostic in terms of the issue areas we invest in. Other people will say we're actually inclusive, so we don't have particular verticals that we're actually quite expansive, although that has changed over the past couple of years, which I'll get to in a second. But I think we've long believed in this concept of proximity, that folks in their communities understand issues better than anybody else. And you got to find these solutionists and you got to back them and let them take the lead on identifying the issues and the approach to solve those problems. And so you got to go all in and go where they go. That's the first thing. In the past couple of years, it's been really interesting as social entrepreneurship has sort of penetrated popular consciousness and more and more people have recognized Echoing Green's pipeline and talent acquisition approaches being really, really effective and impactful. We've gotten calls from an array of folks who say, I actually only care about issue area X, or I'm deeply committed to movement Y. Can I partner with Echoing Green and have you help us source new talent, new voices, new perspectives into my movement or into my field. And we have fielded a lot of those calls. We've said no to most of them, but two times in the past decade, we've said yes. 
One was when we were approached by Sean Dove, who was the leader of Campaign for Black Male Achievement that really works to improve the life outcomes of men and boys of color in the United States. And he said, wow, we really care deeply about social innovation as a tactic and technique and approach to driving change. Could we partner with Equine Green to field additional leadership in this movement? And what an opportunity for us to drive impact working with the extraordinary leaders in the Black Male Achievement movement. So we raised our hand and said, yes, we are in. So we've been running the Black Male Achievement Fellowship Program since 2012. And it's, I think, really one of our proudest legacies. And about six or seven years ago, we worked with a foundation that recognized, like so many folks, that climate change, global warming is an existential crisis. And if we don't figure it out on both the carbon mitigation side and adaptation side, there are excruciatingly painful ramifications for all of us. So they were really committed to bringing new leaders, new voices into the space of climate. And we thought, given our core capabilities to go out into the world and find amazing people who care about these issues, we could do that. So we've been proud of that work. But again, we play on a really expansive landscape and we go where these leaders are and we'll continue to do that. Expansive. And I do think it is inclusive. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges of our generation. You and I are of the similar generation, but I'm just going to say our generation, broadly speaking, there's so many causes that need attention that don't just need light and voice, but also need funding. And it's hard. You talk about proximity, but there's also prioritization. And as we're speaking right now, today's June 11th, the last two weeks in particular, although you could argue the last couple hundred years, but in the last two weeks in particular have been very emotional, very trying and complicated. And when we were talking off air, if you will, I had referenced a blog that you put out on June 3rd, right after George Floyd's passing. And I believe it's called Meeting This Moment. And you said there are three things that we need to focus on to change the world. You might've said more, but these are the three things I took out of it. We need to be intentional, explicit, and we need to have sustained focus with our actions. Would you mind just kind of reflecting on that a little bit? Actually, now that you had since June 3rd, unfortunately, in this moment, and if you add COVID on top of it, every week is like a month, every month is like a year. So since June 3rd and today's June 11th, it's like, that's a long time. Can you just talk a little bit about the sentiment and the purpose you had behind the very powerful words on your blog, which everybody can see on your website, but also what has transpired for you and how have you been feeling over the last week? And it's a lot I'm throwing at you. So just pick and choose whatever you want. We sort of show up in these moments through our lived experience, and I'm an African-American woman of a particular age. I am part of that group of folks of color who understand sort of the American experience. And I will often say that to know America is to experience the heartbreak of America. It is sort of these constant collisions between sort of the soaring and aspirational ideals of the American creed and sort of the ongoing trauma and impacts of our original sin of white supremacy that continues to evolve and change and is absolutely relentless in its execution on racial injustice and structural racism. We're just really good at that as a country. And it is heartbreaking. And it shows up not with just Mr. Floyd, but Ahmaud Arbery, with Breonna Taylor, with Freddie Gray of Baltimore, where I I was born and raised. And it is hard to keep reliving time after time those traumas of 
a people who are as American as everyone else. It's just really hard. I think also I am a student of history and I watch with cautious optimism of what could we do in this moment for it to be different. I mean, again, you go back to the 60s, there were hundreds of these uprisings all across the country and sort of the usual tenor and cadence of these things is that these protests are powerful political statements. And I'm so proud of folks who have gotten out there at great personal risk because they're doing this in the midst of an active pandemic. I was out on the streets on Saturday along with 10,000 other folks. Like We met this moment and it was multiracial, it was multigenerational. It was a beautiful thing to behold. And can I also just say, it's not just the pandemic, but and this is just me being political just for a second, but we're also doing this in the environment where we have a horrible, horrible person as president of the United States, who he himself is racist and hate-mongering, and I think is the exact opposite and the antithesis of Barack Obama and so many other countless presidents who come before him. So you put all that together, and the animus has never been so great. And it's scary. You're absolutely right. It's scary. It is really scary. And So much of what I've learned about social impact work, social change work, comes through the extraordinary civil rights advocates who changed this country fundamentally and their tactics, their approach, how they thought about this work. And they drove change. And we know historically that these uprisings are powerful political statements. They lead to reform, but they also lead to backlash. And time and again, you get sort of this economic retrenchment and disinvestment narrative that follows very closely to these moments that in many ways feel joyous because we're out on the streets together and it feels different and special, but we got to keep our eye on the prize and we've got to focus on what comes next and moving, ensuring that economic disinvestment is not the next step as well as what typically happens, these narratives around law and order and sort of draconian policies that will often follow in the aftermath of these very powerful political statements. And we've got to ensure that we do not see that in this moment. So I think what I was hoping to do and the team at Equine Green was hoping to do was saying that don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I am very fond of the phrase that sometimes you got to make the road by walking and it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be perfect. You just start walking. And if you're already walking, walk a little faster and we can act and we can act now. And in fact, Echoing Green, basically, that has been thinking about racial equity for a number of years, really learning from many of our extraordinary fellows who are on the front lines of dismantling structural racism in this country, looking at what do they need? We're going to change this because we're going to invest in leaders like many of those in our community, many of our Black Male Achievement Fellows. This moment will be different if we also invest in the communities in which these incredible leaders serve. And the work to do around in that is not rocket science, Aaron. Start investing in them. Write a check. Invest in Black leaders, invest in Brown leaders, invest in proximate leaders, and invest significantly if you've got significant investments to give. I was on a webinar recently with someone who I thought made a really good point and allowed us to go through an interesting thought experiment. And he said, 
Imagine what would have happened if 25 years ago we had invested deeply in many of these extraordinary organizations led by black and brown leaders. Where would we be today if we had invested in them deeply 25 years ago? And I thought that was sort of a brilliant articulation to imagine what if. And we can't be having that same conversation 25 years from now. This is the moment to make that investing. And there were a number of other strategies, but start acting right now in the way that makes sense to you. So you have folks like myself and so many others that have direct access to brands, large and small brands that sell directly to consumers and then brands that sell to other businesses. And when we got on earlier, before we actually started recording, I think we were just asking each other how we're doing. And I think we both sighed and it was just, I couldn't find words because I feel very personally beat up and a little fatigued. I've been working with some clients who completely get it. And to your point earlier, they're not worried about what that path looks like. They just started walking because we got a glimpse deep, 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 deep into their souls and to their hearts. And they ended up being able to do the right thing. And by that, I mean, not just words, but actions. What's your advice for brands and companies who are struggling with figuring out how they can make a difference, either inside their own walls or inside their communities, in addition to investing. I think you make a very good point. I didn't realize that there is this economic disinvestment that follows these moments and movements, and that's a whole nother thing I need to look into. What's your advice for these companies and how they should stand up, and should they stand up? That is a big question, Aaron. It's an important question. I think that you've got to look at it sort of at the level of the individual and then the level of the organization. I think Everyone has to take a look at him or herself and determine what you are going to do in this moment. And it could be something as simple as go read White Fragility. Just go read it. Spend some time looking at videos talking about structural racism, what it means, how you think about it. Create space to have conversations with your colleagues who are different than you. I had African American friends who said, damn, I went to work. And again, going to work these days is usually going into a Zoom chat. But basically say, my white colleagues didn't ask me how I was doing. That to me shows a lack of empathy and grace that you can work on in real time. And being uncomfortable is sort of part of the work that we all have to do. Folks of color, people who are hurting in this moment, are not asking you to be the place where they lay down their pain. All we're asking is just to think about that shared connection. It is actually enough to say, hey, how you doing? And be okay if your colleague says, I don't want to talk about it. Say, I got you. I hear you. And that's fine. It's just- And I'm here for you if you want to talk about it at some point. There you go. That's exactly right. And that's what you do. And I think part of it as well is at an organizational level, there's a whole suite of activities that organizations should be thinking about. Everything from, is this a moment to rethink your hiring practices? I think the data is clear. We know that more diverse companies do better. There's an economic and strategic choice to operate that way. Do the audit of your policies, of your hiring practices, all of those things. Create spaces for your colleagues and your teams to have these conversations. Do implicit bias trainings. Do anti-oppression workshops. Bring in experts to help you through facilitated conversations. 
do an audit of how you show up as a company. All of those things I think are super important, but I do think, and you would know this better than I, Aaron, or I'm sure we're similar, that authenticity really matters in this moment. And again, I think we know what inauthentic and dangerous leadership looks like. I think you've talked about that already. We see it at the highest levels in this land, and it's damaging and it's devastating and it is useless. <laughs> so being authentic of how you're going along this journey, I think really matters. What you said earlier really struck me. You said how when you're looking at fellowships, it's not transactional, it's relational. And I've been thinking about that, what you said, even within my own four walls. So as an agency, as a company, and I think many companies, we check the boxes, we do these trainings, we do anti-harassment, we do implicit bias training and all that. I don't think it's enough. And for the first time ever, we're actually having conversations about race, about injustice, about racism and structural racism inside the boardroom, inside conference rooms, where ordinarily those discussions are happening either in academic environments or personally at home amongst friends. And I hate to say this, but it's still very new in an office environment to have these discussions, but it's important. And I'm hoping that it's not a fleeting moment, that it's a movement and it's part of who we are and it's a part of our infrastructure, it's part of our being. And I hope companies feel the same way, but that's the other thing I've been exploring. And I was saying to some colleagues and friends the other day, I've been working almost 30 years and in 30 years, and it's not because I'm a tough guy, because I'm not actually, I'm very sensitive. I've never full on cried at work ever. I've been teary eyed because I've had some colleagues leave us. I've been upset. Last week, I cried twice. And when I say cry, I mean ugly crying. I couldn't control <laughs> myself crying. Yeah, and it was in a cry. Zoom. We could see each other through the Squadcast technology, but it was through Zoom. And it was first in front of my immediate executive team after they shared with me that staff didn't like what I wrote, or a lot of staff didn't like what I wrote because they liked the intent, but they, I wasn't saying enough in terms of what we're doing. So I took another cut at it. And I also try to practice this notion of forbearance a little bit because before I say something, and to your point about walking through that path, I want to make sure I'm saying something meaningful and I'm actually have something behind it. And I was very upset. And then when I addressed a certain portion of our younger staff later that week, we were talking about George Floyd, we're talking about the movement, we're talking about education, we're talking about what we're doing, and I lost it. Well, I lost it. Couldn't breathe, ugly crying. You know that point where you're crying so hard, you can feel your heart in your ears, that like beating, that weirdness? And oftentimes it comes from movies or, God forbid, you're at a funeral or something. I was devastated. And I then felt embarrassment and shame. And then this amazing thing happened. All these people young people in particular reached out to me on Slack and other things. And I said, thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being, we get it now. And that was a breakthrough moment. And I wasn't intentional. It's just like, that's how heavy this is. And I just, it came out of nowhere. And it is interesting. And thank you for sharing that, Aaron. I think that's extraordinarily powerful. And I think it models the way that we all have to show up if we're going to make this not just a moment, but be part of this ongoing movement around racial justice and healing. But it didn't come out of nowhere. This is what I call sort of systems residue. This is what 400 years, this is what white supremacy, which is an amazingly effective global tool for oppression. This is what it looks like. And we all live in it. We're all impacted by it. It's just that it's ubiquitous. It's like the oxygen and the air that we breathe. But when you name it, is sort of the first step to finally dismantling it because it seeps in and infects everything. 
So in the way that we're fighting so hard to find the vaccine to COVID, what does this vaccine look like to finally, finally free us from this insidious, hurtful, vicious, deadly ideology and practice that has destroyed so many lives? And I think this is the way we get through it. What do you look for in social entrepreneurs? Because the one thing that became very clear to me recently is that there are people who can run companies and the people who can lead companies. And they're two very different things. And in the toughest times, people really show, reveal character, their metal is tested. And what are you looking for early on for people that could actually lead a company? Because I think there are lots of people who can run a company. There's a lot of people who can't, but a lot of people who can, because I don't think that's that hard. Leading is different. I think you said it perfectly, Aaron. Leading is different. And Equin Green has a particular approach to social innovation, which for us is sort of an approach to problem solving that leads to bold and audacious social change. So we're not looking for incremental change. We're looking for paradigm shifting change. It's how do you sort of shift norms and behavior so fundamentally that you just fundamentally shift the way the equilibrium works. And that's sort of the kind of transformational leadership, transformational approach that groups like Echoing Green are looking to invest in. So that's the kind of leader that we're looking for. And we've got sort of a whole rubric of what qualities, what characteristics, how do these leaders show up in the world? And it's a couple of things. I think, number one, you can't sort of discount the power of passion because I think it is the embodiment of the commitment to a particular issue, as well as the catalytic fuel that allows these social entrepreneurs to continue on in face of all of the impediments to the work that they're trying to do. Also think resilience is fundamentally important. So much of the work of, I would say, entrepreneurship, and you know this as well, but also social change is about failure. You are usually taking three steps back as opposed to one step forward. So having the coding, the ability to sort of shake it off, get up, keep moving, learning from those failures, those setbacks is a really, really important part of the work. I think in addition, sort of having sort of a movement-based framework. None of us, no individual, no organization can do this work by herself. This is a collective strategy for change and sort of contextualizing your work and your thinking in larger movements, I think is really critical to driving the kind of collective impact that is really required. And then I think there is a level of curiosity that is really required to do this work. The best leaders are constant learners. They're construction learners, I call them. They're constantly taking threads from different fields. They're analyzing and digging into situations and extracting, excavating learnings, lessons, data that really fuels the kinds of feedback loops they need to continue to drive change. So I do think it is a constellation of qualities, characteristics that these leaders exhibit that allow them to be different and apart from other sorts of leaders. So it's the transformational leader that in particular Echoing Green is looking to invest in. Those are all, I think, spot on. I can definitely relate to so many of those things, especially the point about curiosity. I mean, I'm constantly washing myself with podcasts and books now, probably more audiobooks than reading because it's just easier. But a lot of the ideas that 
might even implement with clients or my own agency. And I've got a startup as well that we're working on. It comes from others. It's just other people inspire it. I'm not imitating, I'm being inspired. I think curiosity is an important component. How important is also vulnerability and humility in a leader, especially today? I think that you hit the nail on the head, Aaron. I think that in years past, you saw a little bit too much of sort of the noblesse oblige. I am here to help you. The us versus them as opposed to the we. And I think there's a level of humility and sort of a humanistic approach that there is no separation. There's no separation with the communities in which you have the privilege to work. So I think Humility is sort of another articulation of sort of grace and empathy and fully seeing someone and understanding the value of the folks you're walking alongside of. Years ago, there was an extraordinary documentary about the civil rights movement, Eyes on the Prize. And there's sort of one component of this when a young SNCC member, Charles Sherrod, is talking about a segregationist police commissioner, I think it was Commissioner Laurie or something like that. I can't remember his last name, but was sort of looking at Charles Sherrod and saying, Sherrod, I don't mind because you don't matter. And sort of, again, this is the whole notion underneath Black Lives Matters. Sort of your ability not to see me, to make me invisible is such a disservice, is such a cruelty. It's just sort of the banality of making others invisible that we've got to constantly fight against. And I think in the best social change agents, they fully see others and they fully hear others. And I think that's such a beautiful, again, relational quality of the best amongst us. And I think it's critical to driving change. And it's seemingly simple, but I think ego and emotions kind of become gating factors to being able to have that level of character. So sometimes it's learned. It doesn't mean that you have to be born that way, but I also think we need to figure out how to, and it could be learned at any age. And it's one of the things that we talk to people about. No, I think that's right. I remember the historian John Meacham once said, character is destiny. And I think there is real truth to that. And sort of the moral responsibility and weight of leadership in moments like this. And again, it's scary when you've got folks at the highest levels and the highest office in our land who exhibits little to no character. It's got just horrific implications. Borderline cruelty. Let's hope that changes very soon. So listen, I have one more question, sorry. Just kind of, you mentioned it earlier, we're looking at 40 million unemployed and there's no V-shaped economy recovery. It's not gonna happen. It's gonna be a slow roll and there's uncertainty and ambiguity reign, unfortunately. It's just, it is what it is and we're just dealing with that. Have you found funding and sources of funding challenging in this environment post kind of in this COVID-19 era? I mean, again, Equine Green is a nonprofit organization. So for many nonprofits, especially those run by Black and Brown folks, this current environment could be an extinction level event. We are going to lose many nonprofit organizations. And when you look back at the 2008 downturn, which is different than this, but I think an interesting analog of what we can expect. And you've got the combination of philanthropic money, not only potentially retrenching, but also being redirected, and in many ways, smartly so, to emergency response and sort of immediate needs. It's going to hit particular organizations in different ways. And I think, interestingly, again, this is another example of how structural racism sort of rears its ugly head. You only have to look at the rollout of the Paycheck Protection Program 
where you look at less than, what was it, less than 5% of the dollars for that very important program went to Black-led businesses. So you get a retrenchment of resources that are going to hurt for-profit businesses, nonprofit businesses, especially those run by people of color. And I think it's going to be a long tail recovery as you share, Aaron. So I think the ramifications are pretty significant. And those who will come through this moment do what all good leaders do. They retrench smartly. They pivot. They think about new opportunities. And we do have data to show that many of the nonprofits who came out of the last recession and were able to live to fight another day did a number of things. They were really sort of thoughtful about restructuring and retrenching and hunkering down. They over-communicated. They over-communicated with their donors. They over-communicated with their broader ecosystem to make sure that they were keeping and stewarding their nearest and dearest, and they collaborated. This is a moment for real, new, interesting partnerships where together we get through this moment. So I think there are opportunities, but it will be a bumpy ride. But you also have folks who are completely committed to the work that they're doing to the communities they serve. So many folks will find a way through, and that's what keeps me hopeful. That's beautifully said. And Cheryl, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Every word is a word of wisdom coming from you. And I encourage all of my listeners to go to, it's echoinggreen.org, right? Yes, that's right. To learn more about the organization. If you'd like to support the organization, I think that'd be even better. But we can follow you and follow your words of wisdom. And again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for sharing your thoughts with us today. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure and honor. Thank you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.